Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Dean Radin. Dean Radin is a, the chief scientist. Okay, I'm going to start that again. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Dean Radin. Dean is chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001, he held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. He is author or co-author of over 250 technical and popular articles, three dozen book chapters, and three books including the award-winning The Conscious Universe, Entangled Minds, and the 2014 Silver Nautilus Book Award winner, Supernormal, which we're going to talk a little bit about today. So hello, Dean. Thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. So I, I've just finished reading um, this really fascinating book, Supernormal, which I know you published a few years ago. Um, but I want to talk a lot about what you explored here today and then and maybe segue into a conversation about the rest of your work. But before we get into all of that, I would love to hear just a little bit about your own personal story and what led you to the scientific work that you do. Well, I, I study psych, psychic phenomena, mystical experience, uh, these aspects of consciousness which suggests that uh, there it's probably associated with the brain in some way at least mm -hmm. the mind is but these phenomena suggest that the the brain and consciousness are not the same thing so normally people are attracted to these things because if had some kind of dramatic experience or they know someone who's had such experiences that is not my background yeah uh, I, I don't have any anything I can remember when I was growing up that either happened to me or to anyone in my immediate family that would have been considered to be a psychic experience mm -hmm. or a mystical experience or anything like that. Yeah. So for me, it was primarily uh, curiosity based on a lot of reading, which I did as a, a kid in science fiction and fairy tales and mythology of the world and uh, Eastern and Western psychology. I don't know why, but I was always attracted to those topics. So I read a lot about it, and I always wondered why in that literature, psychic and mystical experience are talked about either as this is normal stuff yeah. or as plot points. And so why don't we know anything about it? Mm -hmm. Well, of course, I learned pretty quickly that from a scientific perspective, it was dismissed yeah. as pure illusion. And I thought, well, that, that maybe it's just wishful thinking. Uh, but when I was around 12 or 13 years old, I discovered that there was actually a scientific discipline that did study these phenomena to ask the question as to whether or not it was real. And so that really sparked my interest because the curiosity was always there. But now there was a way to figure out if the curiosity is based on something. And I decided that if there was a way to do that as one prof one's profession, then that's what I would want to do. Mm, excellent. And that field is called? Well, the field is called parapsychology, mm -hmm. which is maybe historically an okay term, but unfortunately it has carried a lot of baggage yeah. because parapsychology and what used to be the old yellow pages or as you look up now on the internet, uh, it it is equ equivalent to paranormal enthusiast right? or with psychic. yeah. And, and that's not 
what it is. It's it's about science and scholarship looking at these experiences that people talk about. That's really what it is. Okay. So in your book, Supernormal, which I thought was really interesting because being um, an asana yoga teacher myself, of course, I've read the Yoga Sutras uh, many times. And what is really fascinating for me is that, you know, when it comes to the book of the Siddhis, what we notice generally in teacher training is, is that this is sort of like the stain of the Yoga Sutras, right? It's like what everyone wants to kind of pass over or gloss over um, because, you know, it's like, well, you know, there's a lot of great stuff in the Yoga Sutras, but this is the stuff where they had a little bit, they were a little bit magical, not really grounded in reality. Or, you know, or, or when it's a favorable reading, you know, the most favorable reading, at least generally, is that, well, these are metaphorical. Like, we should see these as symbolic um, powers that the yogi can cultivate or whatever. So you take, obviously, a very different approach to these. So let's first start just by talking about what are the siddhis and and then and then maybe, and then talk about, like, you know, what, what how, how we can understand them in relation to the practice of yoga as it's found in the Yoga Sutras. Okay, so the cities, of course, city is a Sanskrit term, like like the, the original form of all of the rest of the Yoga Sutras. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the concept here is that Patanjali was writing about what, what at that time was a an oral tradition. Mm-hmm. And we don't know how far back it went, probably thousands of years before it was even put into written form. And the, the, the third book on the cities is written in a very matter-of-fact way. It's not like, uh, now we're going to give you a chapter on fantasy. It was simply saying that as a matter-of-fact in doing this particular meditative style, or just doing the practice, mm-hmm. that you will eventually start to run into certain kinds of phenomena. And that there are prescriptions and basically ways of developing these kinds of effects. And oh, by the way, you shouldn't dwell on this because your goal is enlightenment. And these things can can distract you and get you off the path. But it's useful to know about because if you run into them, you know that you're progressing to a certain degree. So it is true that within in each culture has their own context and their own worldview. And modern, secular, scientific society, we look at those kinds of phenomena. We've been told throughout our educational experience that these are fantasy. Yeah. Well, since I've been doing research in in this area about what is the mind actually capable of, it it occurred to me that either Patanjali would suddenly had a went schizophrenic and decided to become a. Uh, a fantasy writer for one chapter, uh-huh. or he was as accurate in writing the other three chapters as he was in this one. So I decided to take what I know about the experimental literature and apply it to the 25 or so, 26 cities that are discussed. The The term city is sometimes uh, translated as perfection or attainment, mm-hmm. referring back to the process, the, the process of yoga. And of course, in the original process, all of the things that we think of in modern terms as yoga, the, the stretching and poses and all of that, that was completely secondary to the actual purpose, which is meditation. The, all of the physical yoga was simply to get your body able to be strong enough to be able to sit down for eight hours a day, yeah. at days, months after months. So there's two, two ways to then address this notion of are these powers real? Are these mental 
things that happen are the real things. One way is simply to ask people who are engaging in meditation as to whether or not they've ever encountered these kinds of phenomena and compare that against the general public which may or may not have meditation training. So we did a, a big survey, a few thousand people answered our survey who were at various stages of practice with meditation and asked questions uh, about uh, experiences of telepathy and clairvoyance and so on, although we avoided those terms to right. try to make the description of the experience rather than label it. Yeah. And 75% of the respondents said that, yeah, they spontaneously had experiences of mind-to-mind -mind connection or they knew what was happening the next day and so on. So that, at least from a survey perspective, it suggests that from a phenomenological point of view, that people do run into these things. It just happens. There's the second way is the one that I've spent most of my time with, which is doing laboratory experiments to see whether it's possible in principle to find something that looks like a mind-to-mind -mind connection or to find something like uh, what we call clairvoyance or precognition, to look at those kinds of phenomena under controlled conditions where you know what chance expectation is, and you do it under controlled conditions, so you know that people aren't faking it, and do you get results under those conditions? Well, to make a long story short, the answer is yes. You, yeah. you can find among the 25 or so different cities that what we see in the laboratory are very elementary as compared to things like levitation and invisibility and so on. We don't see that in the laboratory, either because it's possible they don't exist, although I think that they do, because otherwise why would potentially be writing about them? Uh, or more likely because the f rare people, even among advanced yoga practitioners, they know from the traditions that you don't demonstrate this stuff. You don't even talk about it. In fact, there's prohibitions that you don't talk about it, even to a revered teacher hmm. within, within the Yoga Sutras. And the idea is that the, uh, a large chunk of yoga training is to not necessarily dissolve ego, but to recognize it as something that gets in the way. Yeah. The moment you start talking about your great powers, your ego is inflamed. Mm -hmm. And that's going to push you backwards. Yeah. Or you become Darth Vader, <laughs> on one or the other. So I'm not, I'm not surprised then that it is very difficult to find people who have super talent in these highly advanced forms of cities that are that we don't want to come to the laboratory and show us what they can do. Mm -hmm. But you know, but you, but even though we haven't, you haven't been able to, or these are encountering these particular people are rare. And I hear what you're saying in terms of like the the prohibitions on, on on coming out about someone's superpowers. But one of the things that I really appreciated about the book is that. It, uh, is that you're, you're, you try to uh, reframe it not as if these are extraordinary things, but that these are really more refined expressions of things that are actually quite normal. So well, could you take us, let's just you know go to a specific, say, you mentioned mind-to-mind -mind connection, so, or telepathy, <clears throat> I guess. So let's start with that one. And you know, obviously, I'm going to invite all of the people that are listening to read your books because you go through extraordinary detail to kind of explain very compellingly you know, the science science behind all of this and why it's compelling and why it makes sense. Um, but let's talk a little bit about a couple of the experiment, experiments for those that are listening in terms of telepathy and, and, and how it illustrates the, this mind-to-mind -mind connection. You mean how, how do we study it in the laboratory? Yes, exactly. Yeah. 
Okay, so there, there's two types of telepathy. Uh, there's, in fact, there's for any kind of psychic experience. It could be conscious or it could be unconscious. Mm-hmm. Uh, up until about the 1970s, most of the research in this domain w- was interested in conscious reports. Uh, it's partially because the technology wasn't there yet and the methodology for studying unconscious responses. Uh, from around the 1970s till now, maybe 1980s, uh, most of the research is been focusing on unconscious responses, either physiological responses or behavioral responses that were not consciously mediated. And that's because a huge amount of literature suggests that this is not something that's that's starting at the conscious level. It starts at very deep levels, which sort of makes sense from the the yogic lore as well, right? You, You meditate going, you're diving deep when you meditate and it, that's where the action is. Yeah. So the original conscious experiments had to do uh, way back in the 1930s and even before that, uh, wow. most popularly associated with J.B. Ryan, who was at uh, Duke University. And he popularized the idea of using cards. So it's uh, uh, with cards with five different symbols on them, sometimes called ESP cards, sometimes called Zener cards after a guy named Carl Zener who developed the symbols. And it was a very simple test. You have two people, you have one of them looking at a card, the other one tries to guess which of the five cards is being looked at. They guess it and then you do this repetitively. Uh, The overall evidence from that suggested that people could do it. Hmm. Effect size is not very big. So if out of 25 cards with five symbols, you would expect by chance to get five correct, just randomly guessing. And the overall result might be something like 5.3 on average. So it's not a big effect, but there are so many cards that were guessed that you can exclude chance as a possibility. That kind of experiment began to lose favor after being conducted for almost 60 years, primarily because it's extremely boring. (laughs) It's boring for everyone. It's boring for the people who are guessing, for the people who are sending it, for the the experimenters. And the the boredom manifests in the results because even people who are really good at this – would begin to lose the ability. Yeah. As they, they, I mean, they would, they would rather stab themselves in the in the <laughs> ear rather than do this test again. Yeah. So, as a result of that, there are new methods that were developed. Uh, by the way, the card test is called a forced choice test because okay. you only have five choices to guess from. Yeah. The the new method was called free response, which is a lot closer to the way these phenomena manifest in in the everyday world. So, in a free response test, your target could be anything. Typically a picture, but it could be a picture of anything. So you're not limited to trying to guess this or that. You're you're trying to get an impression. So the method that became the most uh, famous in the sense or popular, and that has been repeated many thousands of times now, is called the Gonsfeld experiment. Gonsfeld is a German word meaning whole field, and it comes out of Gestalt therapy or mm-hmm. Gestalt psychology in the 1930s. And the, the field that you're put into is one of unpatterned sensory stimulus. So the way it works is uh, you put somebody in a comfy chair uh, where, and maybe you put something in their hand so they can't feel anything. Uh, you put a half of a ping pong ball over each eye. You okay. tell the person to keep their eyes open. You shine a red light in their face. And you put on headphones that play white noise. 
So now you can't feel anything, you can't see anything, you can't hear anything, but your eyes are open and they're told don't go to sleep. The white noise is pretty loud, so it's hard to go to sleep. But you can imagine after a couple of minutes in this unpatterned stimulus yeah. that your your mind gets tired and wants to see something. Mm -hmm. Because we're normally, if we're a sighted person with eyes open, you expect to see something. So the person might be in that state for 20 minutes before the experiment starts to get them into a mental state or a consciousness state where they become exquisitely sensitive to any kind of impression. A lot of it will be internally generated. Maybe some of it is generated from somewhere else. So you put somebody in this Gonswell condition for 20 minutes, you get them through a relaxation period so they're ready to receive quote, receive, and now you have somebody at a distance who will be the, quote, sender. The sender is uh, shown a picture which has been randomly selected out of a pool of four possible pictures. The pictures are all different from each other. So the one that they randomly get, and they didn't know beforehand what they were going to get, and usually the experimenter doesn't know either. Mm -hmm. uh, the sender's job is to send this picture to the person in the Gonsfeld condition. The person in the Gonsfeld is asked to speak aloud, to we call it mentate, so it's, it's verbalizing what's going on inside their head. And in many of these experiments, there's a one-way audio link from the receiver to the sender. So the sender is trying to mentally send this picture, and meantime, they're, they're hearing what is going on in the mind of the receiver. So yeah. the sender can adjust their mental sending strategy to, to try to get them to evoke or try to get what they're trying to send. So at the end of the sending period, which might go for 20 minutes, the person in the Gonsfeld condition is taken out of that state, brought back into a normal state. Anything that they had said had been recorded, and so they play back the audio recording. And now, but they're shown four pictures. They're either all at once or in a random order, one of which is the target and three are decoys. So their job is to pick the one that matches your impression the best. So a hit this experiment is the, the receiver correctly selecting the target that the sender was sending, mm -hmm. and a miss is that they didn't get it. Yeah. So by chance, you'd expect 25% of the time that people would just randomly guess the right answer. So it's a very simple statistical kind of outcome. This experiment has been done, I think, uh, at last count, over 4,000 sessions of that wow. type by many laboratories around the world, at least 20 laboratories and lots and lots of different in investigators, lots of different kinds of couples, strangers, emotionally bonded pairs, friends, lovers, you name it, a wide variety. And rather than getting 25%, the overall average is roughly 32%. So now the question, and statistically speaking, the odds against chance are a gazillion to one. Mm. This is not a chance outcome. Yeah. So what is it then? Well, maybe they cheated somehow. They figured out a way of cheating, or maybe there was collusion, or maybe they could hear each other. Or all of these kinds of things have been looked at. And the, the experiment is designed in such a way that all of those mundane explanations are excluded. Because if it's not excluded, why bother doing it in the first place? Mm -hmm. So as best as we can tell, it's not a mundane explanation. Something else has to account for the 7%. So what else could it be? Well, then people say, if it's not a mundane reason, maybe there's bad randomization. 
maybe somehow the right targets were being used, or maybe the pictures that are being shown, one is being selected more often than the other, and there's more smudges because somebody handled a physical picture. Well, in the last 20 years, nobody uses physical pictures anymore. They use digital yeah. display. So all of the criticisms that, that have been raised over the years have been locked down. And as far as we can tell, if properly conducted, it is a loophole-free experiment. Mm -hmm. And you still get 32%. You wow. get actually a lot more than 32% if you, if you select people in advance who claim that they have these kinds of experiences. But just college sophomores selected at random get 32%. Wow. So this suggests that this is a common human experience. You don't need special talent. If you have special talent, you do better in this experiment. The 7% over chance expectation uh, for people who are statistically naive will say, well, that doesn't seem very good. Right. But again, from a statistical perspective, we know that the 7% is a real 7%. It's stuff, information happening somewhere that's yeah. getting into the, into the receiver's head. Yeah. So that experiment has been done so many times that there's really no need to do it anymore. Yeah. The next stage then is, uh, and the 7% is good statistically, but it's not very convincing because it's a pretty small effect. Right. So in the last couple of decades, people have been looking at this more in terms of unconscious responses. So the first thing you would you would say then is, if this if mind and brain are correlated, which they are, and whatever's going on inside the receiver's head is something to do with their mind because they're talking about it, and it's something to do with the mind of the sender because they're thinking about it, well, why not do an experiment involving the neuroscience of telepathy? So many people have done this now. There's roughly three dozen experiments where the nature of the experiment is you put have EEGs looking at electrocortical activity in both the sender and receiver. Uh, rather than trying to send information like a picture, you do something much simpler, which is that the sender is sitting in front of a, some sort of display that might do a light flash, or they might hear an audio beep, something like that, a stimulus. And then when that occurs, you look in the brain of the receiver to see if their brain has some kind of response. It may not look exactly like the response in the sender's brain, but there'd be some kind of correlation. Mm -hmm. So those experiments have been done, uh, both with EEG and with functional MRI to look at, at blood, flow, blood flow changes. And those show correlations, as you would expect. Yeah. So when, when stimuli are occurring, there's some kind of relationship between the two people and the stimuli are not there, you don't see an effect. Mm. Again, the results are statistical. Uh, they tend to be fairly weak in terms of that the magnitude of the correlations are not whopping, but statistically they're there. So that's comforting because it should be there if what we're seeing in, in the Gansfeld condition is correct. You can take another step now and say, uh, what if we uh, simply ask somebody to stare at somebody else? And what we'll do is have, we'll use a one-way uh, video record or like a closed-circuit TV. So I would stare at you, but you don't know when I'm staring at you. Uh, and we'll record your physiology mm. to see if there's a physiological change when you can feel the attention of somebody at a distance. Well, that experiment also has been done around three, three dozen times, several thousand or over a thousand people involved in the experiments and there too the evidence 
from a meta-analytic point of view, is very clear that physiologically you respond differently when someone is directing their attention at you than when they're not. Mm. So we have multiple converging directions of evidence, some with physiology, some with conscious response, suggesting that there are ways in which minds can be connected. So that's a simple that that's basically the simple experiments looking at one of the the simplest forms of the cities. Mm. That's so. super fa yeah, that's super fascinating. And um and in you go in into a lot of detail in in the book on that as well. So I would love to look at maybe one more of the cities that you think is in terms of what you're doing in the laboratory has been, you know, really fascinating in the same way that we're talking about in in in, in illustrating um, the possibility of these powers. So I, I'll, I'll let you pick whichever one you uh, think is most interesting. The first city is the ability to see past, present, and future right. at the same time. Mm. And so it's not exactly the case that the cities are in order of elementary to, to complex, right. but it just so happens that that city is the first, and it also turns out to be one of the most elementary. It's also one of the types of phenomena that people report most frequently, usually in terms of precognitive dreams, mm -hmm. but also waking effects, all kinds of things that are associated with somehow knowing what's about to unfold. Yeah. So there too, we have forced choice conscious experiments for many, many years. The meta-analysis on that shows very clearly that they are very tiny effects, but people can still outguess a, a random event which should not be guessable. That uh, just like the telepathy experiments transitioned into physiological experiments to look at it as an unconscious effect. So there's two types. One is called presentiment. The other one's called implicit precognition. So the presentiment one uh, mimics what people report in real life pretty often. And I, I developed this method as a way of looking in the laboratory about things that happen to people in real life. So I'll give an example. Uh, this was about a year ago. I, I was at a shopping center, and uh, when the way that you come out of the shopping center when you're driving, uh, you, you can see a red light, which is on the main drag, but there's a bank right on the corner, and you can't see if there's cars waiting even at the, at the light. So I'm now approaching, going out of the shopping center. I see I have a green light. I would normally accelerate because I want to get to the light so I can get out. But for just some reason, I felt there was something wrong. So I slowed down. People behind me didn't like it, but I was slowing down and actually getting slower and slower as I approached the green light. And then uh, just about uh, at the point where I would be able to see if there's somebody on the right, a car blasts through the red light on the main drag at around 50 miles an hour. If I had continued going at the normal speed, I would have been hit broadside and, and injured or killed, perhaps. Right. Yeah. So this is a presentiment yeah. in that it wasn't a cognition. I didn't know what was about to happen. I just felt something was wrong. Yeah. So the, the idea then is how do you take that into the laboratory and don't put people at danger yeah. to look <laughs> at this effect? Yeah. So the way I did is I, I wired people up to look at various forms of their physiology. The simplest thing is skin conductance. Yeah. Put a couple of electrodes here and look at skin conductance. What, can you explain skin conductance for people that can't see us? Uh, skin conductance is, uh, is what, how your skin responds to, uh, to various stimuli. Okay. So it, it's really talking about the eccrine 
glands mm. in the skin or the sweat glands. Okay. So if you get scared, you sweat. Yeah. And so before moisture comes out, the glands themselves are activated, and you can detect that uh, through electronically. Okay. There's also micro sweat. There's sweat that you it may not feel like it's sweating, but they're very small amounts, and you pass a small electrical current between two spots on your skin. It doesn't have to be your hand, but that's a convenient place to put it, yeah. and you can detect that very easily. Okay. So what it's detecting is called sympathetic arousal, mm. the portion of your nervous system that, that, is, that is activated as a, compared to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the one that calms you down. Yeah. So you monitor something like skin conductance, you then sit somebody down uh, in front of a computer screen and you'll present uh, a picture to them which is either very calm, like an ashtray or a tree or something, or very emotional, like a picture of, of a car accident or a surgery or something that you know it's going to push people, or an erotic picture. So you could have emotional pictures that are negative or positive, but something that's going to push the person. Yeah. So the, the protocol is you sit in front of a blank screen you press a button, you know that five seconds later you're going to see something, but not only do you not know, but nobody knows. Because immediately before the picture shows up, you have a, a true random number generator I'll show for people who are watching. Here's a, an example of a commercial random number generator, which is an electronic circuit that has passed all kinds of tests to make sure that the bits that it produces are truly random. Okay. So you use a device like that to dip into a very large pool of pictures with different kinds of emotional affect and present it for five seconds. And then the picture goes away and you wait maybe 30 or 40 seconds until you feel you've calmed down. You press the button and you do it again. So in a single session, you might see 30 or 40 pictures. Okay. Nobody knows in advance what they are. The hypothesis is that if there is something like a presentiment, a true feeling of your future, then immediately before the emotional picture, you, your sympathetic nervous system should start to gear up already because that future emotional hit is rippling backwards in time. And before you see an ashtray or something that's calm, you won't have any reaction at all. So you, it's a prediction of a differential effect in skin conductance. Okay. So that's how you do the analysis. You look at not not from the point of the stimulus beyond, but before that happens. Right. And so I, I did the first experiment of this type in 90, 1996 and got amazingly good results showing that this seems to work. People somehow knew what was going to happen without knowing how they knew. And a colleague re repeated this same kind of experiment within a year. And at this point, there's something like four dozen replications from labs around the world using lots of different kinds of physiological measures. Skin conductance, pupil dilation, uh, heart rate, blood pressure, EEG, electrocortical responses, uh, blood flow in the brain, so on. And basically all of them show that the, the body responds differently or differentially depending on w what is about to happen. What's even more interesting is that the method of doing these experiments is very standard psychophysiology. I mean, the whole point about a lot of psychophysiology is how does the body respond to stimuli? Mm -hmm. So one of the experiments that is used is presenting calm and emotional pictures in sequence to people to find out what happens. Well, if you go to that data and you look at it and say, well, rather than just looking at what happens afterwards, what if we go beforehand? 
just like the experiment, the presentiment experiment, do they see the same effect? They should, because it's the same kind of experiment, but they, people normally don't look beforehand. So we were able to get, uh, my colleagues were able to get a total of six databases, the raw data from published experiments looking at what happened from the stimulus afterwards, but they reanalyzed it to look what was happening before. They found a significant presentiment effect in those data, wow. which strongly suggests that this is, again, a very natural phenomena, happens to a lot of people. A lot of people are not paying attention to what's happening physiologically, uh, but for people who do and get gut feelings and that sort of thing, perhaps they will be seen as having better intuition or something or luck or who knows what. Mm. That's how it manifests for them. Mm. So that's on the physiological side. The On the other side is the implicit form of precognition testing. Uh, and the way that that works is uh, there's – there's a whole bunch of different variations, but I'll just give one to, to illustrate it. So normally when you – you let's say you're going to have a test uh, having to do with um, words that you've memorized. So you would uh, you would study for the test. You may have 24 words, and you look at them, and you memorize them. And then the next day you take a test, and you have to put down the ones that you memorized. Yeah. That's a normal memory test. A backwards memory test is you first take the test. You have 24 words. You've never seen any of them before, and you have to write down the ones you remember. Mm. Mm -hmm. So, and then you study. <laughs> so this is a, re a time reversal of the usual way of doing the experiment, except that you don't study all 24. You only study 12, mm. because what we're interested in is if you're looking at 24 in the beginning, with the 12 that you're going to study in the future, are you going to remember those better in the present than the ones that you don't? study yeah. in the future. Yeah. So that's a differential test too. That has been done many times now. There are 90 replications of this kind of experiment where you're, you're reversing the usual course of an experiment. And it's very clear that that is a real phenomenon as well, mm. that your future, future exposure to a stimulus or future memory will somehow ripple backwards in time and influence your present time behavior or memory. And it's completely unconscious because you're not, you're not trying to do something. You're simply doing a task, and later you get what in, in the biz you would call you're being primed with information, but it's in the future and somehow comes back in the past. Mm. So all of these studies, whether it's a forced choice study, choosing a card that you will be shown in the future, or a presentiment or an implicit precognition, all of them always – usually not not uh, planned, but most of the experiments involve the equivalent of unselected volunteers because they just happen to be around. College sophomores is the, the usual case. And you see the phenomena in these people. And just as with telepathy, if you choose people who say that this is simply a part of my life or choose people who are long-term meditators, you get much better results. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and that's and and what you sort of say in the book again is that the it's the and what I've seen also in some of the uh, some of your videos that I was watching is that generally the results are better with meditators. But is that the meditation like you know there's so many different kinds of meditation. Have you done any testing about you know s uh, people who are practicing specific forms of meditation? Like, is there a difference, or is it just generally meditators perform better? We don't know. 
Okay. So, so far there, there haven't been studies comparing this versus that type of meditation. Okay. Uh, my guess is that because most forms of meditation involve attention training yeah. of one type or another, whether it's it's concentrative, kind of pulling it in, or open focus, which is pushing it out, yeah. it's still manipulation of attention. Right. And all of the experiments that I were describing, in fact, all of the experiments in, in parapsychology involve attention. Yeah. And sometimes the task is very abstract. You know, do do this thing with your attention. And by the way, the target is some, in some other room somewhere. So if you don't have attention training and know how to control how you direct your attention, how to use it, or how to keep it stable, then you usually can't do the task very well. Right. So one of the reasons why I like to use meditators in our experiments is because they can follow instructions. <laughs> right? I mean, instruction yeah. is... Do this with your mind, and they can do it better. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I guess then it it might matter less which kind of meditation you do, and more this kind of general refining of attention that you're talking about. That's really the the crucial point. So right. you know, it's it's interesting because I mean, all of the things you're saying, it's in, in general in the in the kind of the the. I don't know, popular culture. We have these things in our in our vocabulary. Like I had a hunch it was going to happen. I knew you were going to say that. Someone calls you and you, you know, oh, you must have, your ears must have been ringing. We have all of these sort of ways of describing it. But, but generally, because it's not within, it's not culturally permissible to then jump to the conclusion that that was an actual presentiment or whatever, you know, unless you're in a, in a, within a community that's sort of, you know, open to that idea. Generally, you just chalk it up to chance or, you know, it's like, oh, that just, you know, just how ironic that that took place, blah, 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 whatever. And, um, and, and so, you know, but one, one thing that you find in the, if, and for anyone that reads this book is that it's, it's, well, it's not surprising because I suppose a lot of us know that people are doing this kind of research, but this research has been done a tremendous amount of times. I mean, many, many, like you're saying, like thousands, of, sometimes thousands of times, some of these studies over the course of several decades. So why is it then that this has not, is still kind of below the threshold of the mainstream? Why is it that we don't, why this isn't just common knowledge? Why are we so resistant to accepting this as, as you know, one of the, those normal aspects of experience? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the, the first question is, are these phenomena real? The second question is, well, how come I don't know about it? Yeah. Well, it, it all devolves back into the scientific worldview. Yeah. So the scientific worldview creates a certain picture about the way things are. It's based on a, uh, a the doctrine, we might say, of reductive materialism. Yeah. It's, this is now maybe three or four hundred years old or maybe a little bit older in terms of uh, the, a method that was developed by Galileo and Francis Bacon and a few others and Newton uh, as a new way of trying to understand the nature of reality. And in the process of developing that method, uh, you reduce things, you assume that everything is material, and this has been inculcated in the educated Western mind, primarily Western, uh, but inculcated into our minds for, to such a degree that anything else which doesn't seem to match that model is assumed to be fantasy yeah. or fraud or something like that. It's, it's okay for, for comic books, but that's all. Yeah. The, and of course, if that is true, then we need to, to live with it, basically. Unfortunately, it also creates a very nihilistic view of reality. 
it, it suddenly important things for humans like meaning and purpose there is no meaning and purpose in yeah. science it's it's not there anymore as everything is purely mechanical so part of the challenge then is uh, how do you what do you do with the scientific worldview uh, which, by the way, has given us the evidence saying that these phenomena are real. We're using all of those yeah. very same methods. The epistemology is the same. It's leading to a different ontology. Yeah. But epistemologically, that's how you study these phenomena. And uh, to say nothing of, well, the, the technology we're using for this interview would have been impossible unless reductive materialism worked. Yeah. So this has been the sticking point for a long time. How do you integrate these kinds of phenomena which which are spooky in the sense of they seem to not exactly be in space-time that's the reason why these phenomena look odd so up until about a hundred years ago from a physics perspective it was impossible so for hundreds of years up to last century it would have been impossible because nothing can be spooky like that can transcend space-time well a hundred years ago we learned that space-time is flexible it's a relationship. In a roughly the same time, we also learned that there are all sorts of things that transcend space-time. Namely, oh, the whole quantum mechanics is some is an aspect of physicality that is not in space and not in time. So, modern physics is no longer modern. I mean, yeah. we have a, a hundred years of this this new physics. Yeah. But most people, most of the time, live in a a common sense worldview which essentially is a refinement of classical physics. Yeah. Classical physics had absolute space, absolute time, and all the rest of it. And classical physics also assumes that objects are separate. So if you take common sense, and that then becomes the way that you think about the way the world works, and by the way, that's how most scientists think too, because classical epistemology is not based on quantum mechanics. It's based on classical mechanics. Hmm. So it's not surprising that most lay people and scientists and scholars basically don't have their, their mind wrapped around the notion that our everyday experience of space and time is a kind of construction. It's a mental construction, and it's also a special case of a much deeper form of reality that we know now is true. Yeah. If it wasn't true and quantum mechanics wasn't working right, all of our technologies wouldn't work. So you need to expand first stage is you expand our sense of what we mean by a physical reality. Physical reality is way stranger than everyday experience says. And interestingly then, the direction of the change in physical reality allows for these space-time independent phenomena to occur. It also allows for, it also changes our, our notion of things that are separate and says, no, actually, that's an illusion. The separation is an illusion. Mm -hmm. So there's many directions you can go at this point. You can say, well, you know, the mystics have been telling us forever that separation is an illusion, that uh, the mind can go into very deep places where mind and matter are the same, where consciousness is fundamental in some way, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So all of that is usually dismissed, but most often by people who actually don't know that we that physical reality is not what it used to be. Mm -hmm. So I know many of lots of physicists, and I had some physics training in my own background, I've written about this. Uh, 
many physicists would say that the trying to make a connection between quantum mechanics, the strangeness of quantum mechanics, and the strangeness of what's these psychic things, is a misunderstanding mm -hmm. of one or both of those yeah. domains. I would say uh, to those people that they actually don't know their own history. Because at the beginning of quantum mechanics, almost all of the founders of quantum mechanics said something along the lines of they thought consciousness was fundamental. Mm. And there's a door that's, that everybody knows in physics, the door that cracks open the possibility there that consciousness is important because you know that observation matters. Some would say that it's not really it's not human observation, but different forms of physical things that don't require humans. And to which I would agree. We're not talking about just human observation, but observation is a more general construct having to do with consciousness yeah. and not just human consciousness, consciousness with a big C, mm -hmm. some massive form of something, back, background consciousness. So I've been thinking for many years on how do you take what I call the knowledge pyramid of science? This is where you, you have this pyramid of knowledge with physics at the bottom. It's like the base and then chemistry, biology, psychology, and so on. So that's the pyramid, the way we think of the hierarchies of knowledge. Within that hierarchy, which is usually thought of as being a classical hierarchy, these psychic things don't make any sense at all. Right. The cities don't fit, which is why we ignore that third book in the Yoga Sutras. <laughs> but what if the, the mystics were actually correct and the bottom of the pyramid is not physics, it's consciousness? That means above that, above consciousness, the pyramid is exactly the same. Every discipline, all the textbooks are more or less correct. They're still revised every 10 years or two years. Yeah. But the disciplines are correct, which, is, which allows reductive materialism to work within this domain. But it fails to work when you start to expand the domain. So consciousness is now at the bottom. Interestingly, if you look at this – you. We think of this pyramid because each hierarchy emerges into the one above it. When you emerge from chemistry into biology, it's the same stuff, but it, it has new properties that you wouldn't necessarily be able to predict when you're at the same – we were at this level of chemistry. You wouldn't predict that you're going to get all these different living creatures, but that's where it comes from. Yeah. It also has the layer below that, electrons, protons, and so on, and basic physics. Well, this new model, you put consciousness at the bottom. Consciousness somehow has to emerge into the physical world that we understand, and then everything else, that's what standard science is about. So how do you get from consciousness or just pure awareness into physics? That's the leading edge of science in many disciplines. Mm -hmm. It's not talked about in these terms. It's talked about in terms of information as the fundamental reality or mathematics as the fundamental reality or even symbols as the ultimate reality. There's this whole branch of deep mathematics which is uh, basically used by physics to turn this informational structure it informs, like literally forms, into physicality from um, information. So when I use the, the word consciousness, it's an oversimplification, a super simplification of whatever we're talking about here. But there's something that is symbolic, informational, deeper than physics. Mm. So if that is true. Everything I just said is true. It means that this thing, which is before space-time, because it's before physics as we see it, uh, it would include quantum mechanics, classical mechanics, and then all of the rest of everything. And it's there throughout the entire 
pyramid, just like electrons are there all the way throughout. That means that by the time you go all the way up to something as complex as the human brain, which is we can think of as somewhere near the top of this pyramid, that within the structure itself, the physicality of the structure and even the, the operations of it is something that is aware and not in space-time. Well, suddenly mystical experience makes sense and psychic experience makes sense because it's simply part of the structure of how reality is hung together. Mm. So I would claim that if, if you, you look at Patanjali and you look at um, the whole mystical lore, in fact, the whole esoteric traditions, that can be seen through this lens as, as a way of making sense of both modern science and ancient wisdom. Wow, that's that's really incredibly fascinating. And 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 so um, I guess one of my last questions then is, where do you think we are in terms of shifting? You know, we have the orthodoxy obviously that is resistant to this, and and you've been doing this work for a number of years now. I mean, do you see us moving in the direction of being able to shift to this new um, quantum mechanical worldview versus the Newtonian one? Like, do you see that happening, or do you feel like we have a a long road ahead? Oh, it's definitely happening. Okay. It, it's happening because quantum mechanics used to be so exotic that nobody understood it very well. Right. And now it's taught it is, as advanced courses in high school. Ah. So it means that we're getting better ways of understanding it. We're certainly learning a lot more about it. But we're also finding it, it, that it's easier for younger people to grasp these ideas because they don't have baggage that they need to carry along. Yeah. That's making a, a huge difference, mainly among both younger scientists – who get it, and among older scientists who knew about it but dare not speak about it for their career because it was not popular. Yeah. So there, there's only people kind of in the mid-range who are playing a conservative status quo game because it's it's still dangerous in the academic world to talk about this too much. Uh, but I, I'm optimistic that yeah. eventually it may take a few more generations. Uh, but but yeah, we're, we'll we'll slowly get. A, a new kind of worldview that is not a change from the past, but an expansion of it. Mm. And what was it uh, for you personally? You know, you're, you're talking about how it was, you know, taboo to talk about, and you would dare not do it for the sake of your career. And I mean, and you mentioned at the beginning that you never had any of these experiences. So was it just the profundity of your own curiosity that led you not to care about all of that? You know, orthodox taboo type of um, fear. Well, for me, the curiosity led to doing experiments. It convinced and, you. And it, yeah. yeah, and so that that's what convinced me that, holy smoke, the, all this stuff I've been reading about is real. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure that if I started to do experiments and got nothing, I would have dropped you it. You would have dropped it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but I didn't. So I, I, I saw something interesting, and it still was more or less a hobby – for a long time, up until I was recruited uh, by a, a classified U.S. government program that was doing this kind of research oh, wow. for, the, for the military. And so it was – there were lots of rumors, by the way, that the, such a thing was going on, but nobody really knew because it was classified. Well, so I was recruited in that program. I, I was on that program for a year, and it, that gave me the opportunity to see people who were exceptionally talented in this domain, primarily in clairvoyance, mm -hmm. to the point where they were doing operational missions. Wow. Es espionage, basically. 
And, and then I decided that uh, going back to do conventional research was simply not viable anymore. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like getting a peak of the way that the universe works and, and now having to sort of forget it and go yeah, away. Yeah, and hiding no, it your was head just, in the sand. Yeah. yeah, this was way too interesting. Mm-hmm. It, it would be roughly the same, I suppose, as uh, uh, going to a meeting and having an alien show up or something. <laughs> you know, it's like it's totally mind-boggling yeah. that, that this, oh, this is real. Yeah. Well, so yeah. Th- my curiosity changed into something where uh, I felt this some, for one reason or another, uh, I, I've been involved in this now, and I'm good at it. So this yeah. is much more interesting than anything else. Yeah, it's super interesting. And um, and again, I'll, I'll encourage everybody listening to 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 pick up your book. I'm going to read your conscious conscious universe is the the one of your first one, correct? Right. Yeah, I want to read that one next. So before we close, you know, um, I'd love to give you an opportunity just to share anything else you um, think is sort of relevant to what we've been talking about. And if there's nothing else, then at least sharing with the listeners how they can um, connect with you or if you have any talks or workshops or anything coming up that you'd like to share. So I'm uh, my my title is Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's easy to find on the web. It's either ions.org or noetic.org. Mm-hmm. I'm also easy to find. I'm I'm Dean Radin, so I'm dean at noetic.org, or if you prefer, dean at ions.org. Our institute was started by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth man to step on the moon, and it it uh, it's a science institute devoted to studying these kinds of phenomena. Yeah, it's the the outer limits of consciousness or the way that Edgar used to talk about it is he went into outer space to discover inner space mm. right so this is the frontiers of outer space at the time was the moon what are the the frontiers of inner space and we don't know yet what those frontiers are yeah. but the the more that science has been able to look at at these deep realms of of um, the noetic reality uh, the, the more interesting it becomes yeah. Which is a good sign because it means you're probably on to something. Yeah. So we now uh, we have a group of seven scientists on our team. Uh, the we have roughly 50 people on staff, and we have a retreat center in in Northern California, uh, roughly 25 miles north of San Francisco, called Earthrise, where people get to experience these things or various kinds of workshops. Oh wow! So lay, layman people can come, not just scientists, come to these retreats. Yeah, okay. yeah. The, the the retreats are primarily workshops and shamanism. You name it, the, the whole range of things that people do. Uh, the science team is integrated with the retreat center in that we have ongoing experiments where we will invite people who are retreatants to participate in the experiments, but also we're tracking how they are before and after they do a workshop. We're, we're taking psychological measures, physiological, biomarkers, wide variety of things, because we want to, to see what works and what doesn't work yeah. and how people change. Mm-hmm. Wow. Fascinating. Excellent. Well, this has been such an interesting conversation. I don't think we've ever talked about um, these kinds of topics on the podcast before and not with such um, scientific rigor. So thank you so much for sharing your time and your and your knowledge. And um and I uh, and, uh, hope to speak with you again soon. 